0: Hello, welcome back to Kind Mind. I'd like to give a brief introduction to this 99th episode, Fragrance on the Hand That Gave the Rose. And so we are one show away from episode number 100, which is really special to me and would not be possible without all your support. And I've said before that I plan to give a physical gift to those who are supporting the show on Patreon. So if you'd like to be involved with that mini-celebration and receive a token of appreciation from me in the mail, you have one episode to join us, and you can do so on patreon.com forward slash kindmind for as little as $5 a month, and you can access some bonus content there as well. This episode is all about the art and science of giving It was recorded just last week on Wednesday, November 29th at our Kind Mind Gathering. And I have many recordings to choose from when it comes to producing future episodes. And so I don't have any predictable pattern, but several members of Patreon had expressed regret that they couldn't attend the live recording. And the content still feels very relevant uh, because it is the season of giving as we've just entered into December but the societal expectation to buy a bunch of gifts or marketing pressure to spend 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 is not the real spirit of generosity and I'm sure other people are also feeling a lot of heaviness during these dark times literally as we get closer to the winter solstice but also in the world so much chaos hostility and death and destruction still throughout the world So it may be hard to find our balance during these times. But sincere generosity is good for our health. And according to psychological studies, our happiness is tied to others. Our liberation is bound up in the liberation of the vulnerable. And so our well-being is more linked with pro-social behaviors. And the warm glow, or the helper's high, that we experience when we give to another corresponds to an actual rise in body temperature and release of feel-good hormones like oxytocin and endorphins. But how, when, or what do we give is worth considering further. Additionally, experiments with hedonic adaptation reveal that the happiness we enjoy from doing the same activity or having the same experience diminishes over time as our brain adjusts and looks for something more stimulating. But that's not true when giving, even in the same manner. And it got me thinking, since I listened back to the talk, how common it is to feel concerned about what our gifts mean. Especially in our families, people tend to keep tabs on their gift. And I don't think this is only tied to the transactional nature of consumerism and capitalism, although that certainly could be a factor. But I had shared an, a historical anecdote about evolution that primates removing the lice off one another's back may have been a critical step in the stage of evolving from primate to human and an expansion of our capacity for cooperation. But since then, thinking deeper about the transactional nature of gifts, imagine if one of these mischievous monkeys had their mate or friend removing lice or ticks off their back, and then they switch roles, and the monkey who's already cleared of the bugs decides to run off. Well, that could really be tantamount to disease and death for the other. So maybe there is an evolutionary component to this where if we don't get reciprocity or we don't feel that there is sufficient appreciation for what we do for others. There may be something deep down in our bones and ourselves that feels insecure, and I wonder if it could be tied to something like that. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. It explores the ways to give, but not just materially or commercially once a year, but as a healthy habit to give of ourselves as a spiritual practice, but also within yourself, between your mind and body. So I hope your holiday season is off to a meaningful and transformative start. Looking forward to connecting soon. Thank you again for your support and very much looking forward to our upcoming 100th episode. Take care. Among the first nations of the Upper Pacific Northwest and Canada, there was a complex social, economic, and ceremonial practice and tradition known as the potlatch. It would usually be commenced at various special occasions, maybe that aligned with different seasons or different other celebrations like a wedding or a rite of passage. And it was typically hosted by a great leader or chief or somebody of power. I'm not an expert on this tradition, and I'm not a historian, and I don't mean to suggest that this was some kind of enlightened tradition, but the way it would operate involved a redistribution of wealth. The aristocratic host would perform some great demonstrations of gift giving and sometimes there would be multiple hosts and this would turn into a competition. But essentially whoever gave the most in any of these potlatch Ceremonies rose in social status. So the goal of this practice was to give as much as possible to the people. There were some other strange elements of this tradition, including the destruction of material possessions. So it might include giving furs and food and skins and jewelry to the guests or it might be some grand display of the destruction of the powerful person's resources and then the canadian government influenced by colonial and missionary agendas outlawed this practice and imprisoned indigenous people for participating in it Uh, all the way until i believe the 1950s some of the laws changed and first nations were permitted to practice this again but i just want to juxtapose this with socioeconomic status in modern america and in capitalist society where a leader, let's say a political leader, goes on a campaign, right? And what is that campaign? That campaign is essentially a series of fundraisers. And basically, the person, typically a man, who can accumulate the most resources for himself, can raise the most money for himself, will win will win the status of the political office or the the powerful position. And then among the economic strata in society, the person who can keep or earn the most or um, acquire the most through investment, through saving, will elevate in status. So the Canadian government deemed that potlatch as wasteful and uncivilized for numerous centuries, but it's kind of ironic, right, when you think about the true spirit of generosity and our conventions around the holidays of giving, which is, you know, just a a mechanical practice oftentimes or uh, just a reflection of consumerism. And this idea that you can accumulate wealth just by keeping it in in the way that we construct the concept or the social agreement of money is really just a social construct. It's not anything that maps on to nature. If I have some fruits uh, or some eggs or some materials, they won't last forever. So that's not really how nature works. Either I use it, or I share it, or I consume it, or it loses its value. This is often criticized in different spiritual traditions, the idea that you can lend and then reap exorbitant amounts of return. But that's how the monetary system works. Another alternative in history was in the Mayan civilization, people would trade or use cacao beans to acquire goods. So essentially their money was chocolate, chocolate money, but cacao beans, they tend to go bad within a month and lose all value within six months what a difference, right? Imagine if any money, currency, was no good in 30 days. You have 30 days to to do what you can with your money. And you just think of how different society would be. And in those potlatch ceremonies, it wasn't the person who had the most that was the most respected. It was the person who gave the most. So you could be poorer and be more celebrated or more respected because it's conceivable that that person could give more. And so now, if a person had a billion dollars, they could just put that billion dollars in a savings account and um, it could generate 60 million dollars in interest annually. Or more modestly, more possible for more people would be to one day have three million dollars in savings and that would yield could easily yield 180,000 in interest annually. So a person could comfortably live as a one person off 180,000 a year based on the standards of the world while never touching their principal investment. Anyways, when I've been really sick or ever had a brush with death, the overwhelming thought that just uh, washes over me isn't like, I wish I had experienced this or done this. It's always that I feel, oh, I, I didn't quite do what I could have. Or I didn't like give to the, to the people I love enough. And so when I'm healthy, back in the, in the Matrix and in the programming and in the rat race and goal-oriented and ambitious again, I do try to pause and contemplate memento mori, you know, and remember that whenever that time comes, I'm again going to feel that regret that I could have given more to not only the people I love, but the community. There are three ways that money can make you happy. You may hear like, you can't buy happiness But you kind of can. Uh, One is you can spend your money on experiences. And studies show that people feel more happiness when they're waiting in line for an experience than for a thing. So in line to get into the concert or in line to, to go on the ride at the amusement park, it really reflects something about time and the course of our life and how, in the end, all we have are memories. And so money can help us construct different experiences, but we don't often think of this. We've talked about this before in the dialectic of being and experiencing versus having and and acquiring. Second way money can influence our happiness is it can actually buy time. If a person has more money, They have more control over their time. You know, we have to trade our time to survive, trade our time doing things that if we had enough money, we probably wouldn't do, or maybe we wouldn't do to that extent. And the third way, which is probably most practical for the most people, we can give. Money can facilitate generosity. And this doesn't mean that like giving all your money or anything. It just means that money is a vehicle for distributing gifts there was a study by uh, psychologist norton and colleagues in which they gave subjects either five dollars or twenty dollars every day for a week with explicit instructions you're either in a group where you're told to spend this money on yourself this money is given to you and it's for you to use for you today. If you don't use it, you lose it. The other group was instructed to use that money to give gifts to other people. And then the researchers uh, interviewed and conducted psychological assessments, and they found that the group that gave to others were happier. And it didn't matter whether it was $5 or $20, which suggests that the size of the giving really isn't as important as the spirit of selflessness. There was an experiment where, not an experiment, but uh, uh, a tracking of a Boston-based company, and the researchers tracked how the employees spent their bonuses. As they mapped the percentage of their bonus going to charity or going to giving, that directly correlated with how happy they were in the, the season of their bonus. But anyways... In evolutionary psychology, there's a few theories about why anyone would be giving or or be generous. And so there may be some programs that we are running in our brains, consciously or unconsciously, and one is kin selection. We make some sacrifice, individual sacrifice, so as to protect our family or protect those who may share some genetic contents that need to be preserved in the sense that that a mother or father may sacrifice themselves or run into a burning building to rescue their offspring it may be part of the survival of the species another thought is that reciprocity increases our chances of survival and reciprocity means like i scratch your back you scratch my back And if I give to you, you're more likely to give to me. And so in a much more hostile world among hunter-gatherers, this could lead to cooperation. And it's cooperation that really separates Homo sapiens from other species. It's difficult for other animals to cooperate on the level that humans can. Humans can cooperate with the construct of money. They can cooperate with the construct of religion. They can cooperate by politics, like the construct of democracy or utilitarianism. But it's also thought that when chimpanzees started removing lice off the backs of their peers, and so something dawned in their minds that if I remove lice off of my partner or, or mate, they may do that for me, and then we'll both live healthier, happier lives, right? So, so that may have influenced the uh, the evolution of primates into human beings as well. And then there is just overall group cooperation. When a person sacrifices and gives of themselves or of their resources to the community, the community is strengthened and that community is more likely than to win in the battle for resources or battle for power among other communities. So it's about in-group bias as well. And then another possibility is just simply social status. Like I described in the potlatch, uh, that may reflect just other types of virtue signaling for mating opportunities. So if a, if a man, for instance, gives more or demonstrates that they can take care of others that may have been more attractive to, to a sexual partner, perhaps. So for those reasons, there may be programs that do inspire us to give. But from an altruistic perspective, I do think we can calibrate our ethical intuitions To simply try to do good for others just because it creates meaning and purpose and direction in our life. I think there are some cultural barriers to this as our societies have become more complex and I want to outline a few of those. One is the bystander effect. In 1968, there was a landmark study by social psychologist Darley who explained how individuals' feel less personal responsibility to give help or aid in an emergency or crisis if there's a lot of bystanders. So the more people in the area, the more this sense of compassion kind of diffuses and a person kind of feels less and less personally responsible for that. And so this may scale out to neighborhoods, to cities, to countries, to the globe, where people feel like, well, you know, what can I do? I'm one in a, in a billion. But, it, you know, it's funny to think that 8 billion people could be saying all at the same time, I'm just one person. <laughs> what can I do about poverty or about war and so on? But really, uh, when when every person just just does their part, however small it is, to relieve the suffering in their own life, in in the community and in the people that they encounter. And that can be as simple as smiling to someone, like greeting somebody person to person, heart to heart, acknowledging that they're there and tending to them on an emotional level. Then Darley had a follow-up experiment in 1973, which is now known as the Good Samaritan Study. And this one demonstrated that There are other top-down pressures that interfere with generosity. In this experiment, seminary students were asked to give a talk or give a lecture about the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the experiment is structured so that on the way to go give this sermon, they will actually encounter a person in significant need of help. Whether the seminary student helps or not actually has less to do with the priming of the the story of the Good Samaritan, and it has more to do with their time pressure, uh, whether they're running late to the hall or not. That actually determines whether or not they'll stop. And so this reminds me of how in historical Chinese culture, in the the way... People relate to time and relationships, it is better to be late for the appointment so as to meet the needs of the people you encounter. Or if you saw someone you know on the way to the appointment, it would be better to be late for the appointment and catch up with your acquaintance. But in America or in Western civilization, it's much more important to prioritize the appointment, to tell the person can't talk right now, I'm running late, or I gotta go, but let's catch up. So that's just a cultural norm, right? And if you think about our society and the currents of capitalism and pressures associated with productivity and busyness and urgency, that stands as a barrier to us actually living integrated, holistic, selfless lives where we construct meaning around celebrating our connections and honoring our connections and our relations and building community with the people around us this notion of a helper's high actually has a, a neurobiological underpinning which is when people give the brain proceeds to release oxytocin which is a pro-social hormone but it's also an opiate so people actually feel this elevated warm glow. And the endorphins are also released, which is parallel to a runner's high. So this warmth that washes over a person is due to the chemistry operating in the brain. And that's probably for those evolutionary reasons. The word gift itself, Geffen, is is the origin in German, to give or to receive. And I think that's pretty cool that it gives equal weight to both like giving and receiving is just like sunrise and sunset these are just natural parts of the cycle of life so you're either a conduit for the earth to give or for the earth to receive back but gift also could mean natural talent like don't look a gift horse in the mouth which originally was called the, a given horse this means that we all we all have natural talents, natural strengths, natural inclinations, and prodigious proclivities. And so we start out with some balance in our account, so to speak. We are already recipients in some fashion. So therefore, we do have some abundance, which can be shared. It could be physical strength. It could be intelligence. It could be athletic ability, it could be the ability to, to fix things, the ability to heal, the ability to listen and pay attention. It's worth reflecting on what our gift horse is and how we can use that to redistribute in our community or in our family. In Swedish, gift means either married or poisoned. I tried to think about uh, these two two definitions in Swedish because it's just so so different, right, than than what we think of as a gift, married or poison. Dive in deeper to the idea of married and gift. When we give something to someone, we may actually be tying ourselves, tying uh, a chain to them, positively or negatively who we give to, how we give, the spirit with which we give, may establish a bond that will last forever. Marriage, ideally, is is a beautiful, healthy, supportive agreement, right? It's not like a person will just marry the next person that they pass. So it does kind of speak to some kind of intelligence Behind giving, the way that a person gives, or whether or not the receiver will know that you're the giver, right? Because it may actually be a proposal. On the other hand, or in addition, poison. Can a gift be poisonous? If a person is giving and they're not giving in the true spirit of generosity, which would mean that a person is just giving out of the goodness of their heart without expectation of a reward or a return. Think about how many times, either you, you may have done this or somebody's done this with you, where the gift becomes a tally, becomes a score, or somebody brings up, you know, I did X, Y, and Z for you, or this is how you thank me after I let you stay with me, or after I paid for this, if somebody is holding that against you, is it really a gift or is it really a poison for the giver? Because if it is the reason that they feel injustice, I shouldn't have gave to you because you weren't worthy of the gift. Who are we really to determine whether or not Somebody else is truly worthy. In the Dao Te Ching, there's a verse about doing your work, then stepping back as the only path to freedom. When a person does their work or makes their contribution and then holds on, what do people think of my work? Uh, Who respects my work? Is my work well received? Am I being acknowledged for my work? Yeah, then it then it starts to turn into pain, into poison. Give, then let go. Otherwise, why give? Are we keeping score? Yeah, I invite you to reflect on this and I also ask you to try giving without checking in on the gift. You know, sometimes people want to know, like, oh, did that fit you? Did you like it? You know, have you been able to use it? That's up to the recipient to decide if they want to thank you, if they want to show you how it's useful. And don't be offended if your gift is given again or not kept. I typically like to maintain a simple accounting. When I have too many things, I have to find more space for it. So if somebody gives me a material gift, I'm probably not going to keep it forever. It depends on what it is, especially if it's larger. So I may be, may use it, but if it's no longer useful to me, and I know that somebody else can use it, I'll probably redistribute, regift it. And in times where people have noticed that or have said something to me, then I ask them, or I'll say, I thought you gave that to me to use as I wished. I didn't know that you still wanted it. We ought to ask ourselves that also, are we actually giving something if it's a physical thing or are we buying something, buying their attention, buying reciprocity, or you're buying some insurance or something like that. Well, that means that you never actually gave it. Any sincere gift from the heart is only the outward symbol of love. The physical gift is the gross part, the tangible part, and the intangible, the metaphysical spirit behind the giving is the subtle part, but that's actually the pure part. That's actually the real part. But it's good to remember this because the token is just the token. It's a ceremony. It's a practice for you to transmit what's in your heart to heal to love, to uplift, to support, to bless. And you'll never fail if you do anything, attempt anything, or give anything out of love. And you can never fully succeed with whatever you do if you act out of meanness or out of cruelty. Like rivers that flow freely to the sea, when we give without that expectation, freely offering the gift, our hearts widen and meet with the ocean of contentment. It's like going from a tiny stream of self-centeredness, and as a person flows and gathers, their interest and compassion and concern widens and widens and widens until there is no river anymore. There is no selfishness anymore because the river has broken beyond its boundaries, its banks, and uh, has merged into the universal self. That is the twisty, turny, but ever forward, spontaneous journey of generosity. Maya Angelou has a quote, I have found that among its other benefits, that giving liberates the soul of the giver. And that's what I'm talking about with the river analogy. But don't leave out the gifts that you would give your own mind and physical body, because you are part of nature, you in the sense of your, your physical form, your vehicle, the vehicle of your body. When we're not so strongly attached and so strongly identified with our physical appearance, we can actually include our life in our giving as if a person that we would meet in need in front of us. And we don't have to overthink it, right? But I'd like to share some insights from Audrey Lorde on this idea of giving to ourself, self-care. Audrey Lorde identified as black, lesbian, mother, warrior, and poet. And she saw this self-care In in terms of generosity As crucial Especially for women And anyone who identifies With a marginalized group Because self-care In in this sense And for anybody really But especially for for people with those histories Is a form of self-preservation And therefore she described it As an act of political warfare Or rebellion against oppression And exploitation Or resistance to dehumanization, or devaluation, or ethnic cleansing. So self-care being self-preservation really is a form of resistance. You don't want me here. You don't see me as a person who has inherent worth and sacredness, but I do. And therefore, by recharging myself, soothing myself, healing myself, I replenish my inner resources to resist those forces. And that's really what a lot of employment is like. We talk about burnout and compassion fatigue, but really it has a lot more to do oftentimes with exploitation, expecting and demanding and requiring in a system like ours that people will work indefinitely, minus some days here and there. And for, you know, just the most modest reward at the end of their life to be able to survive is very exploitative. Meanwhile, if somebody is born into an inheritance or fund, like I said at the beginning, where they don't have to do anything at all, just save save what they have, then they can out-earn and outpace all of their counterparts. And to demonize that self-care in that system really doesn't make sense. You know, when you think about it in in contrast to what some people can afford in terms of wealth and opulence and luxury and rest and the time that they can give to all their needs and, and even overindulge. So I will conclude this part by reading a passage from The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, who has such a beautiful section on giving. And I may have shared this before, but I'll share it again. Gibran was a Lebanese philosopher, poet, and mystic, born in 1883. And in this section, it begins with a rich man asking the prophet, the sage in the story to speak to the group about giving and he answered you give but little when you give of your possessions it's when you give of yourself that you truly give for what are your possessions but things you keep and guard for fear you may need them tomorrow and tomorrow What shall tomorrow bring to the overprudent dog burying bones in the trackless sand as he follows the pilgrims to the holy city? And what is fear of need but need itself? Is not dread of thirst when your well is full the thirst that is unquenchable? There are those who give little of the much which they have, And they give it for recognition, and their hidden desire makes their gifts unwholesome. And there are those who have little, and give it all. These are the believers in life, and the bounty of life, and their coffer is never empty. There are those who give with joy, and that joy is their reward. And there are those who give with pain, and that pain is their baptism. And there are those who give and know not pain in giving, nor do they seek joy, nor do they give with mindfulness of virtue. They give as in yonder valley the myrtle breathes its fragrance into space. Through the hands of such as these God speaks, and from behind their eyes He smiles upon the earth." It is well to give when asked, but it is better to give unasked, through understanding. And to the open-handed, the search for one who shall receive is joy greater than giving. And is there aught you would withhold? All you have shall someday be given. Therefore give now, that the season of giving may be yours and not your inheritor's. You often say, I would give, but only to the deserving. The trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for to withhold is to perish. Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life, deserves to fill his cup from your little stream, and what desert greater shall there be than that which lies in the courage and the confidence, nay the charity or receiving? And who are you that men should rend their bosom and unveil their pride? that you may see their worth naked and their pride unabashed. See first that you yourself deserve to be a giver and an instrument of giving. For in truth, it's only life that gives unto life, while you, who deem yourself a giver, are but the witness and you receivers and you all are receivers. Assume no weight of gratitude, lest you lay a yoke upon yourself and upon him who gives. Rather, rise together with the giver, on their gifts as on wings. For to be over-mindful of your debt is actually to doubt his generosity, who has the free-hearted earth for mother and God for father.